0: Rasham College presents The Plain Forest Does the City Have the Right Trees by Hugh Johnson OBE So you're hovering over a city and it's not this one this is Central Park, New York and it's very clear what is city and what is park isn't it I mean I, I, it, it I've always thought that that view was something I'd, I'd, um, I'd love to get myself, but I saw it and I thought it was wonderful. I want you to imagine that you're hovering over London. You are a, a flying or perhaps a parachuting botanist. And you land somewhere in London and you look around, you see a lot of trees for, compared with most cities. They all, an awful lot of them seem to be the same tree. You think it's funny. I've landed in a forest it happens to be a forest of plane trees. There are clearings in it, and there are plenty of buildings in it, but the plane seems to be the sort of dominant tree. And you look around, and there are some wonderful specimens, absolutely magnificent trees. And then you think again, you say, well, how can this be? Because there are no young ones, there are no saplings. Why they don't have babies, so how can there be a forest without babies? And this brings us straight to the fact that our dominant tree, our most magnificent tree, is a sterile tree. It doesn't have babies. Now, why not? The answer is because it is a hybrid. And it's a hybrid between two species of trees which could never have met in nature because one lives in America and the other lives in the East. They are the Oriental plane, known in India, I think, as the Chenar tree a tree that can grow absolutely vast and will dominate a settlement around which the old men collect in the evening in the shade to sort things out. Um, And the American buttonwood or sycamore which is not nearly so impressive, but the two met somewhere early in the 17th century and married and produced a seedling which we know as the London Plain. We don't know when or where it happened. There's a suspicion is that it happened in Spain, and there's a reason for that. And so one of its several botanical names is Platinus hybrid Hispanica. Its more current name, really, is Platinus acerifolia. Acerifolia meaning with leaves like an acer or a maple. And that's pretty clear. It obviously does. It has leaves like a very big maple, fingery leaves. And... Um, it was introduced to this country sometime in the 17th century, and it did magnificently well, although this is a coolish climate for it. In fact, the suspicion that it was bred in Spain is because it is slightly uh, uh, what I mean the opposite of sterile there the um, fertile but only slightly. In in London those seeds that fly around in the air from plane trees won't germinate, you won't be able to have new seedlings of London plates. But it does reproduce very, very well and very easily from cuttings and produces some absolutely magnificent trees. The the, um, oldest one in England, as far as anyone knows, is one that is in Ely, and I, I do have a slide, but I will it, it's just a, a huge tree. It was planted by the Bishop of Ely in his garden in about 1685, and is about 40 feet round the trunk, so it's a jolly big tree. They just seem to go on and on and on. They grow quite quickly. They um, They don't blow down. In fact, none had ever been known to blow down before the great, gale of uh, 1987, when a few did and a few, a few broke. But otherwise, this great tower of a thing will just wave around in the wind and drop a few branches and be, be absolutely fine. The tallest one, for those of you who like figures in this country, is at Branston in Dorset and it is a splendid 160 feet high. And it's not stopped growing it's absolutely magnificent i've got a good specimen for you here if i can find it um i've got several good specimens but this is one that i found which is actually in the city the city of london where's my cursor oh curse the cursor i can't find it (laughs) what's wrong I think the pictures are going to be a bit of a flop, ladies and gentlemen, I'm really sorry. This is our IT man here, no he's not. Is somebody good on Dells? <laughs> Where is my cursor? There it is. Where was it? Um, Up there? On the screen there, when you push it. Oh, the I see, sorry, okay. See if anyone recognises this. I mean, I'll get it on the screen. does that mean anything to you? It's right at the top, isn't it? Sorry about that. It is in the inner temple. And the temple is in the city, just being this side of Temple Bar. Um, And that is a plane tree which I suppose was planted in the late 17th, early 18th century. That is King's Bench Walk, And you see how the trunk goes right above those sort of 60-foot um wonderful buildings and it's all the crown is right there up there in the sky uh I can't I can hardly imagine a more magnificent uh city tree than that it has other qualities too which I may be able to um illustrate well here's a beauty this is um is that clear oh good because it isn't to me oh should we have less light in the room I wonder how you. We need our expert again. <laughs> it make a lot of difference. Anyway, I've photographed quite a lot of lovely trees, and I'd love you to share them with me. But this is a. This was one in St James's Park, and that is one of the, the. It is really the Royal Parks in the centre of London, which are the the high point of plain culture. Uh, The Green Park is marvellous, and nearly all the trees there are plain. St James's Park has a bigger variety of trees, uh, and this one is in St James's Park. And it's got a label. Well, not this one, but one of its neighbours has this label. Now, does anyone spot any errors on that official label? Fatinus Cross Hispanica, London Plane, Circa 1830, that's quite likely. Southeast Asia is pure rubbish. <laughs> I think we should... If I could show you one to usp- other aspects of the plane Tree, but you know them so well, the question is, do you really appreciate their beauty? Here they are in the Mall, Where they do not grow fast, because this avenue was planted in 1906. And it hasn't exactly shot up, has it? They look like young trees. So heaven knows what sort of rubbish there is for them to grow in. It it certainly can't be proper soil. Then there is... (coughs) This is how they look. This is the forest I was talking about. This is a sort of almost pure plain forest that can't happen naturally. And wherever you look, they're beautiful. And they, they have the... Um, there's that moment, which was rather late this year, when they come into leaf, and the, the, there's a sort of haze, the most extraordinary olive colour as the leaves come out. And then they, you know, they turn pretty much green by now. They are ideal city tree, and they certainly know this <coughs> on the continent where they're planted in, um, in squares and large numbers. <coughs> they come into leaf late, they provide shade when the shade is needed, when the sun gets hot, and then they leave, the leaves fall quite late as well. The snag with the leaf fall of planes is that the leaves don't rot. They are big, flat, slippery, dry things, and they need clearing up. They rattle around in the wind, but uh, it's a job clearing them up. So it's not an ideal back garden tree by any means, but its other virtues will get over that. It also is capable of growing in absolute rubbish, though perhaps not very fast, um, or in practically nothing at all. This one is growing on the edge of a path where you can see it appears to have no roots at all on this side. They are really tough old things. That one is in, that's in the Green Park actually, that one, or just on the edge of it. So I've had great, great fun photographing plane trees, i won't impose many more photographs on you. Um, and they do represent a huge proportion of the trees of our, t- of our city. Um, but the other fact that I've fished out is the fact that in Berkeley Square, which may have the oldest plane trees in London, nobody quite knows which of the central uh, London squares got its plane trees first, but this seems to be about the turn of the 17th, 18th centuries tree on the southwest corner, which isn't a particular beauty, it's rather sort of divided in two, was valued at, its value has been calculated at £750,000. So if somebody was rash enough to damage it, they would get a very, very big bill. The idea of valuing trees arose. cash value for trees arose I suppose uh, in the 70s. Um, at that time I was on the t- tree council, and we were wondering what we could usefully do about trees in cities or trees anywhere really because people tend not to respect something that doesn't have a price or a value attached as we all know. Uh, we worked out a formula by which the species of the tree was it appropriate to where it was the visibility of the tree, the health of the tree, uh, the commonness or uh, otherwise of the tree, all these things were factored in. And then we took a random value and applied it. Then you could multiply it uh, as you like, Uh, but uh, I mean with inflation and so forth. But I think it was last year, uh, that tree in Berkeley Square was worth three quarters of a million pounds. The city, this, the city, where we are now, has got 2,413 trees. I didn't count them, but I suppose somebody did. How would I have that figure? It's not a lot, the square mile. It is an under treed area. And of these, one in seven is a plain tree. That, that, I'm quoting figures, not my research, and that really surprises me. I would have thought it was a higher proportion than that. And you have the uh, difficult question, when you have anything like a monoculture, that's nothing like a monoculture, but when you do have a monoculture, you are of course laying yourself wide open to problems, pests, diseases and so forth. We hear a lot about tree diseases in the press these days, notably the ash dieback, which is a very nasty threat indeed. Is the government doing enough about it? Well, it isn't actually, by any means because it is not encouraging individuals who have the means to, for example, spray ashwoods with fungicide. It is not encouraging or even allowing them to do that. It's saying, you hang on, you hang on. DEFRA says, we'll find a problem to this. We may have to create a new kind of ash tree, mind you, they say, which would take 100 or two years, but we've got it in hand. Uh, I'm afraid this is not satisfactorily. People who possess ash trees or love to ash trees or know much about ash trees want to get going and do something. I mean that's only natural. Um, what would one possibly do, it's a fungus disease, one would spray with fungicide. But are there any fungicides specifically tested for spraying on ash trees? There are not. And you know what regulations do if they haven't been specifically tested. For that purpose, you're not allowed to do it. So, there is no experiment going on, and for all we know, the ash trees will all die before we're allowed to do anything about it. Not very satisfactory. But to go back to the plane tree, it is actually generally a very healthy, tough tree. As you can see, and as we have seen, uh, it thrives in most places. It likes a warmer climate than ours, but it's very happy in the south of this country They're not quite so impressive further north, and they're not nearly so common. Um, But it has, in warmer climates, as in the north of Italy, where there are a lot, and in the south of France, where there are a lot, it has a very nasty bark canker, which is killing it off in large numbers. It's come about as far north as... Geneva is about as far as it's really been spotted in a large number. And they've been having to fell the wonderful avenues of plane trees along the Canal du Midi and other canals in France and main roads. And it's a horrific sight and makes one very, very angry. But that is, become very dangerous. They will they die rather in the same way as the elm died. And I'm sure most people here will remember what a catastrophe the elm the Dutch elm disease was in the 70s and 80s. I mean, people thought we can't lose that population of our, some of our most splendid and biggest trees, but we did. I don't want to be scary, so we, we should actually have a wider variety of trees, and yet you don't want too wide a variety because it's... It gives you a great sort of a gives you a sense of calm and confidence, and this is the proper tree for this place. Thank goodness there are lots of it. We don't want our parks to look like a, an arboretum where every tree is different. That would be absurd. It would, they would lose their dignity and their, their presence. The mayor of London, good old Boris, has overseen the producing of a document on what trees are should be encouraged in London in general um, and what should not. And I was very happy to see that the the mayor in quote says we should especially encourage large canopy trees. Do not want a town full of flowering cherries and little pop-up trees. We want trees to be permanent. We want the big top climax of the forest trees um, because they are what a city really needs for shade uh, as well as everything else. It's not purely an aesthetic matter though because they've also done a cost-benefit analysis on how much it costs to keep, um, to keep trees in good health and good order, how much does it cost the city and, public, and the public purse to do it. Well, they've worked out that it costs very much less to keep big trees for a long time than it does small trees for inevitably, inevitably a shorter time. Because on, on the whole, small trees don't live as long. And what have we got here? We've got some figures that indicate that small trees over a period of, I suppose it's 100 years, um, they cost £14. Pounds. Don't that sounds right. Their benefits are worth £23. Pounds. So you get a, a net gain of a net gain of nine. Whereas a big tree, the cost would be eighteen pounds, the benefits fifty-five pounds, and somebody can work out the difference. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's clearly, a much much bigger uh, benefit. So, what are the potential large canopy trees that we might be planting? Because I want to just run through them and give you um, some of the pros and cons for the other ones. The list officially drawn up runs in in alphabetical order like this. Alder, ash, beech, elm, horse chestnut, lime, oak, plain, and walnut. I'm not quite sure why it stops there, Uh, because one can think of other trees that could be absolutely excellent but let's just take those one by one now my intention was to literally take them one by one but I don't think I'm going to quite manage that I'm going to show you however I'm wholly unqualified for this task, I'm afraid. I can't find the cursor again. Eh? I'm so good tapping it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Where does it well, go? It's on the right hand. And then if you just go left, always push left. Oh, and always. be that oh, Okay, thank yeah, you for saying so about, about that. <laughs> um, now this is a... This is a tree you might consider. You identify, oh, sorry. I haven't pushed it into the, into the right spot. It's still overlapping the other one, isn't it? Has that done it? Yeah. Sort of. Um, what do you think that is? There's a very, a very proper oak. In fact, that is... Um, that's the oak equivalent of those wonderful planes that i showing you. And um, wouldn't it be wonderful if oaks were a, a good tree to, ro- to grow around here? Well, the evidence that they're not is that there aren't any. I and mean, London has got very, very few oaks and it's a rather mysterious. There is one down by, on London Wall, I think, and there are certainly a few in the parks, but oaks are not London trees. There's a famous one in Maryland, I think. But, um, so they've been tried and tested. Now there's a possibility, because these tests take so long that one doesn't want to jump to conclusions. It's very possible that when the parks were established that they found that Oaks just didn't do because London was so filthy. And one of the great virtues of the plane that I have mentioned is that it survives pollution as well as any tree does. Its leaves are shiny, the rain washes them. its bark eventually, as you know, very picturesquely comes off um, <clears throat> thus cleaning itself. so the plane is has all those advantages as a sissy tree, and it's quite possible that the ash the, the, the oak just didn't make it and and so many failed that they didn't get going. but the other tree that very much did work uh was the elm because if you can remember what, for example, Hyde Park looked like 25 years ago, it had absolutely, the elms were as big and as fine as the plains. Places like along the um, (coughs) where the, uh, by the Albert Memorial, where the great exhibition was, um, there were avenues of absolutely magnificent elms now, sadly long gone. And the elm has great virtues. It has I'm not showing you a picture of an elm because there aren't any, Um, or very, very few. It had this lovely virtue of turning colour very, very late and keeping its golden leaves. Even up to Christmas, you would look up into this massive crown of a tree and it would be a golden dome when everything else was bare. And then very early in the season, it comes, it, it, it fruits and it's, you think, why is that? It first of all, obviously it flowers first and you look up and you say, well that tree's gone all sort of purple and miles up there in the sky and that's the tiny little flowers and then after that, as early as March, it's got a sort of um, premature greenness and the crown has gone lovely light green, what's that? That's the fruit so it's a performing tree too, but one mustn't be too nostalgic because we've lost them will we ever get them back? The answer is that the great elms that we had before the field elm above all very characteristic crown um, no probably not but there is there had been many moves to breed a disease-free elm as they would like to do with the ash and that that, um, there are some disease-free elms touch wood um, no pun intended uh, that are apparently succeeding. And Paris has lot, latched on to a, 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 an elm, which is actually called Lutes, after the Latin name for Paris. Um, and they're planting a lot of this. And we, I'm sure it's being tried out in London somewhere. Uh, and in due course, we may have this elm and it will behave like an elm, but won't really look like our elms used to look. But I was working through the Try my skill again. I don't have the idea. Ah. I'm going to show you. Not an older, because I couldn't make an alder look very beautiful. They are very, very handsome and and workmanlike trees, but to find beauty in an alder, you have to look at it really at winter, actually. An alder is most interesting and beautiful in winter because it has considerable catkins, which are rather purple. And it's also covered with cones, which rather suggest it's a conifer, which it most certainly isn't. Um, And they're very good waterside trees and they have been planted in some numbers in London streets, Camden Council really got going on the Italian alder. they grow very well, and they're very straight, and they look rather like a sort of very upright pear tree with rather shiny leaves, but I don't think anyone gets very excited by them. Um, so we might skip over the alder and come to the ash. Now, there's very good reasons not to plant ash, obviously, but if we did... I've got one somewhere not in London, but somewhere else, you might get something like this. That actually is in North Wales, but um, the ash has these great qualities, which I'd better not enlarge on too much, of a very fresh, pale greenness in the early summer. And then as the leaves harden and mature, they flash and they glint. Uh, and so it's a bright looking tree and contrasts wonderfully with the oaks and the others. But that was a good one, I thought. Ash, perhaps not. Beech. Why aren't there more beeches in London? I think probably for the same reason as the shortage of oaks. Uh, the beech also is a tree that tends to destroy everything that tries to grow under it. Beechwoods are the darkest woods uh, down below. I mean, they—they're very. They they encourage bluebells because bluebells need that that season just before the trees fill out, come into leaf, Uh, and then they don't need the light anymore when they've flowered. And the bluebells cut off the competition. They won't let grass grow, and grass would be a big competitor. So, ecologically. Beaches go with certain ground flora, um, but not great in city. Uh, where are there any great beech trees in London? St. Mm-hmm. In the centre. St. Mary There's a good one at St Mary Aldermanbury. Mm-hmm. A copper beach. And yeah. Well, but they're few. I mean, we are not that common. In St. James's Bar- Park, there are some, some big ones planted by, by John Nash when he uh, redesigned the park in the 19th century. So we could experiment with ashes, but there's certainly not going to be any substitute for the plane. Next comes the elm, and we've talked a bit about the elm, and we can regret it. And then comes the horse chestnut going down the alphabet. Well, they are wonderful and everybody loves them and they love the flowers and they love the conkers and the whole... This is a real performer tree. It's always doing something. It's uh, got another trick up its sleeve and it's got such magnificent great fingery leaves that they are impressive in their own right. It comes into leaf very early in the year. Um, It's one of the first things to go green and then you've got the candles to look forward to and so on and so on. But... It has recently had its own problems, and you've seen how they go brown now in the summer. Not an attractive colour at all, and tends to start with the bottom branches, and you see them getting sort of like a premature autumn, um, moving slowly up the tree, not often reaching the top. Um, And that is because a horrible little moth is mining the leaves. Um, The chestnut leaf miner moth. And it's quite interesting, actually, if you, when later in the summer, when you see the lower leaves going like that, pick a leaf, and you'll see it's got brown splodges all over it. If Carefully, with your fingernail, you pick apart these splodges, you'll find they are little blisters, and inside each blister there is one of these little moths. Um, and then they overwinter in the ground, so the... Falling leaves make a nice place for them to spend the winter and then up they go, which is why the problem starts in the bottom branches of the tree and climbs higher and higher during the summer. Um, There may be some cure for that. Nobody's going to start spraying all the horse chestnuts in the world to try and get rid of it. It's very possible that there will be a predator that finds that a good meal uh, and in fact there are experiments going on predators from I think it's the Near East somewhere that might be a cure for that. There is another problem sadly with the horse chestnut and that it it does get a a bark canker, a bleeding canker that could kill the trees. I have some responsibility for um, avenues of trees and things in in Cambridge and we had the um, chief um, pathologist from the forestry commission came along to discuss whether we should be panicking about the magnificent horse chestnuts in Cambridge. And she said, no, we're all bothered by the um, disfiguring action of the moth, but the canker will occur in some trees, can pass from one tree to tree. You know it's there because you see the sap bleeding, dark brown, from somewhere on the trunk or somewhere on the upper branches. And that is a worry, but it's not certainly not a a motive to either cut down a tree if it happens or not to plant others. So there's a risk factor um, in most of these things Um, and uh, uh, personally I think the horse chestnut goes on being well worth planting but you've got to watch it and uh, hope that some cures uh, arise. The oak, we've Touched on the oak, which is next in alphabet. No, it's not. Lime is next in alphabetical order, isn't it? Now, the lime tree is a huge success in London. Not everybody likes lime trees because they are attacked by an aphid that makes them drop sticky mess, and they're not very popular in car parks for that reason. Beautiful as they are, wonderful in parks um, and. Like the plane, capable of living to an immense age. You don't see limes dying of old age. They go on and on and on. And there are various varieties, or species, I would say, and species and varieties, that have um, different, slightly different characteristics while still being pucker limes and doing all the things that limes should do. So, the commonest lime in this country is actually, like the plain, a hybrid. It's called Tilia hybrid europea, and it is supposed to be a cross between a large leaf lime and our native small leaf lime. And it is a terrific goer, and it, was, it also propagates wonderfully easily. You just stick a twig in the ground and away it goes, almost like a willow. Um, and this was, I think, the reason why when people, uh, when the aristocracy started building their palaces in the 17th century and the idea of a great ornamental park caught on, there hadn't been such things before really, they turned to guess who? The Dutch, because the Dutch are the world's nurserymen and they will churn out plants quicker than anyone else. And Holland shipped over millions of little rooted Cuttings of this very splendid tree, um, which were tube to buy, and there are places like, for example, Castle Howard in Yorkshire, Clumber Park in Nottingham, uh, and plenty nearer here, where the avenues of limes are the whole feature. They are absolutely splendid. Uh, they will grow as tall as any tree in this country. One of the, some of the tallest broadleaf trees in England are limes. The only thing is that they sprout. And you get these, this is the hybrid line. You all know those great sort of tufts of very energetic sprouts that come up from the bottom or anywhere else on the trunk of the tree and rather spoil its appearance. I mean, really spoil its appearance. You don't get a lovely, great, clean, elegant trunk normally. So by the time that people had discovered that this was... Um, a uh, bit of a drawback, they planted their great avenues and they weren't, weren't about to unplant them so the other kinds of lime tree didn't really get a look in. They're also very good for feeding cattle. I mean, that is a, a, an important aspect of the choice of trees in the past. It was a, a very important thing for a farmer or anyone else that your tree was appreciated by the beasts of the field. And and they were, and um, elm, munch munch, everybody loved to eat an elm, Um, or any, I mean, a hungry cow will eat, or indeed deer, will eat any green leaf practically, but they certainly loved lime, and uh, that was another good reason to grow it. The last in this list, alphabetically, is the walnut. Now the walnut can be an absolutely wonderful tree, as you know, um, can grow immense in size. It can be trained to have a lovely straight trunk. The trunk eventually goes a very elegant pale gray color. Um, and uh, it is a performer as well. The trouble is its performance is not entirely um, popular to its neighbors. The walnut has nuts. And you don't often get to eat those nuts on an an English walnut because they don't ripen very well. Uh, But the people who do get to eat them are the squirrels. And so all through the nutty season, you get a a hail of half-eaten, chewed walnuts coming down and you get an enormous squirrel population. And there are other things that squirrels do that um, aren't very good for the neighbours, like they eat little birds in their nests, they eat bird's eggs, Uh, they're generally very greedy. Um, And what a pity it is they're so pretty, they'll always be. That's another subject, is must we tolerate the grey squirrel forever because it destroys the red squirrel. There are no red squirrels left in areas where the grey is abundant. There are only a few pockets of that beautiful little red squirrel left In Northumberland there are some, in parts of Scotland there are some, on Anglesey I believe there are some, where the grey squirrel hasn't quite got across the Menai Strait, and on the Isle of Wight there are some, but they will never be able to come back to the places where they've been eliminated if there's a population of grey squirrels. Now that is the A to W of the large canopy tree species recommended um, for London or any other great city, to which I would like to add, and I'm not sure why they're not present, except for lack of opportunities to try them, I suppose. And one is that wonderful thing, the tulip tree. Now the tulip tree, Liriodendron tulipifera, um, is as fine as any tree uh, in terms of its Trunk, canopy, beautiful leaves with a curate like rather like a, a big maple leaf with a notch cut off the end. Um, its tulips aren't quite the headline feature that they sound like. I mean, you can say people say tulip tree, and where are the tulips? They are quite modestly coloured, green and orange, about this time of year, um, and well worth examining, but they're not going to sort of uh, make a spectacle of a tulip tree. But the, the, the virtues of the tu- tulip tree are many. It grows to a, a very suitable, tall, handsome, permanent shape, which is just what we want in, um, in city trees. Um, it doesn't seem to have diseases. It, uh, it turns the most lovely sort of buttery colour in autumn. And uh, that's about it, really. I mean, we should have lots more tulip trees. The, I did do some consultation when I was planning on planting tulip trees in somewhere, in a public place. And they uh, said, it has been known to drop branches. Well, yes, sure. <laughs> um, it might've been known to drop branches, but the elm had that reputation. Seriously, it had, in fact, there's an old rhyme That said, Elam hateth man and waiteth. (laughs) (laughs) The other tree that does get planted, and to the general satisfaction, and should be planted much more, is the Norway maple. I wouldn't say the sycamore, which is its near relation and sort of superficially similar, because sycamores plant themselves anyway, as anybody with a garden in London knows very well, that those little seeding seedlings in their hundreds come up anywhere near a big sycamore. And a sycamore can be absolutely magnificent. Funnily enough, we have one in our London garden, and uh, it's not what I would have chosen at all, but it's about 100 years old, and it's almost as fine in its... Um, in its splendid great trunk as a a plane tree could be, and rather similar sort of flaking, patchy uh, bark. Um, It has the lime tree's disadvantage of having a plague of aphids when the leaves are soft and fresh and young in spring, they are a feast for whitefly, and then you get the sticky problem. So everything underneath is sticky. The sycamore is far too prolific with its children. Its leaves are a bit sort of heavy and rattly like the plane tree. Um, Otherwise, what can one say? I mean, it it, it, is a possibility. And in big open spaces, it's not such a bad idea where the grass is mown regularly, as in Hyde Park, for example, there are some, but not an awful lot. Um, The Norway maple, on the other hand, its near relation... um, grows to full, big tree size, relatively rapidly. Um, Its leaves are more delicate. They're thinner in texture than the sycamore's leaves. Um, And they are very similar shape. It flowers marvellously. The sycamore flowers rather greenly in spring, as you know, but the Norway maple flowers in a sort of brilliant yellow-green, which, is a real eye catcher and then unlike the sycamore it turns beautifully yellow in autumn and its leaves being thinner don't clutter the place up so much and blow around and rattle in the wind so the norway maple has almost everything to be said for it it has got uh varieties that are more popular really than the, the tree itself and i wanted to come on to varieties because let's see how we're doing. um. I can find the cursor. Can't find anything. No. The Norway maple has a popular cultivar whose leaves are red. Now, some people think that if a tree has a red variety, it must be better than the green variety. And a copper beech must be worth, worth more than a green beech. Now, why precisely that is, I'm not sure. It draws attention to itself, that's for sure. And when it comes out into leaf in the spring, it is a very pretty um, coppery-pinky colour for a while. But then watch it into the summer, and it turns the most dreary, funereal, sort of black, crimson, nearer black colour, and that's the way it stays. And I don't see any advantage in that. It, it, um, it just looks... It looks like a great big hole in the air, actually. It's a, it's a black hole, visually. Uh, and there are other trees that do that, red trees. There's a popular purple plum, not on our list of seriously big trees, um, uh, which people say is very pretty. It's got red leaves. It flowers pink in the spring. And then what they do? It turns black. And that's what you've got for the rest of time. I think the other... Uh, Variety that happens in trees, of course, is some are golden, and one of the most popular trees of the of, of today, one of the most fashionable trees of today, is the golden form of the acacia. I haven't mentioned acacias because although they do fine in in cities, uh, they are quite short lived, most of them. Uh, they break up the pavement, and that's. A <laughs> Every, to most good things have a disadvantage this is also true of cherries as gardeners know cherries have roots very near the surface they are all the rage in Kensington the, the royal borough of Kensington and Chelsea is cherry mad and plants them as the main street trees um, and then it finds that the paving stones are heaving up and, and they have to take the paving stones uh, away and then on the surface of the pavement there's a great sort of wriggle of, um, of roots, which um, you can trip over, and not a not a top idea. Um, so the acacia has that among its disadvantages. Its golden form, on the other hand, which is called frisia, and I have a lovely picture of it, but I don't think I'll be able to find it. Ah. I'll show you. I'll show you a black tree. Well, this is this is this tree in spring. This is Prunus bliriana, the purple-leaf plum, and you may say, what could be better than that? This is also in the city. This is in the inner temple again. But uh, what is pretty or beautiful about it? It's actually a really rather a, it's redness. Very not really red anyway, but it's a misshapen thing and it distracts attention from all the things around it. And incidentally, there is another candidate tree which I haven't mentioned because it's not in the large canopy category and that is a birch. People love birches. They've got lovely white trunks and so on. But a birch belongs in woodland or at the edge of woodland. Try making an avenue of birches and they don't do the first thing that avenues should do, which is stand up straight every birch takes its own little view of the vertical and so you don't really get a proper avenue you get a sort of funny looking arrangement and they don't have the solidity the dignity that a, that a city tree should have and there is a birch just not looking like very much so wouldn't that have been altogether better with those glorious georgian buildings if somebody had sensibly planted i'm not saying they have to be plane trees but a row of one well-chosen, solid, straight, long-lived, big-canopied tree. Uh, the I've got Robinia frisia here, and this is also. You see, the temple is a great hunting. It's the nearest good hunting ground to the city for beautiful trees and roses and marvelous gardens in there. This is not a great photograph of Robinia frisia, the golden acacia. Um, That is very tall. I was was on an elevated vantage point so it doesn't look very tall. But that tree is certainly 60 feet high and that's Middle Temple Hall building on the right Um, and that's a lawyer studying his brief. Um, So I think that the only disadvantage with with this acacia. To my mind, it can look like a patch of sunlight on a, on a gloomy day, but it's fragile. They do break, and they're it, not, not good in a high wind, and then you get these broken branches sort of hanging about in the top of the tree, and, and you have to climb to get them out, which is not very easy. Um, if I can make these pictures work, I, there are other possibilities. This is one. Ah, yes. Now, Ian Ritchie, who recruited me for this very pleasant task, said, you've got to mention mulberries. Because there are all sorts of legends about mulberries in the city. And the Drapers have a historic mulberry and uh, is it the Mercers have a historic mulberry? There are a few. And this one is again in the temple, in the middle temple. It seems to be the remains of a very, very huge old tree. There is one on one side of this fountain, and there's another on the other side. And they're, they're sort of broken fragments, really. And this is what happens with mulberries. Every respectable mulberry is supposed to be planted by, or in the time of, King James I. And the reason for this is that King James I was very anti-smoking. You may remember what he said about tobacco is a filthy weed, and Uh, should be discouraged. Unfortunately, it was the big industry in his new colonies in America and Virginia. All the farmers planted tobacco and he thought we must stamp out this noxious weed uh, and give them an alternative way of making a living. Why don't they make silk? I'll send them over a lot of mulberry trees, which he did. And the only snag was that he was misinformed because the silkworm does not live on your standard mulberry tree. It lives on the white mulberry tree, Morris alba. Morus nigra is the mulberry that has staining fruit. Morris alba doesn't, but it does feed silkworms. So King James's attempts at founding a silk industry really came to nothing. And we do have a few remnants, and that is one. And the leaves are lovely, and the fruit is lovely, uh, but they never really, as it were, got off the ground. But they do look old, and the reason for this is that they, they root very easily from cuttings. You can cut quite a decent-sized sort of big twig or small branch off a mulberry, stuff it in the ground, and you've got, quite soon, a tree. that won't look as though King James planted it, but look as though it's been there for quite a long time. And then in due course they break up, they're not solid long-lived trees and you get this sort of broken remains of a mulberry, it's very easy to imagine that it's centuries old. There is another picture I wanted to show you, and that is the other, the thing that tree that is becoming fashionable in not yet in the City of London but in street planting, um, some authorities think it's really great here it is rather obscured behind railings you may recognize this metasequia glyptostraboides this is the latest well, one of the latest introductions into cultivation from the tree world it's a relation of the distant relation of the redwood. Uh, It was discovered in China during the Second World War. It was introduced to this country in 1947 or 48. Uh, It's a deciduous conifer in that respect like a larch. It grows very fast. It is reputed to like living on the side of a pond and like lots of water but it grows just as well um, elsewhere as in, guess what, inner temple garden, this one, it's lurking behind that splendid fence, but it is, um, it must be young, there aren't any very old ones, Uh, it's 60 or 70 feet high, and it's just ideal in a situation like that, it is not, in my view, so ideal along the Cromwell Road extension, where uh, Hammersmith Borough, perhaps them, or perhaps the roads authorities have planted them on the way down to um, the um, Fuller's Brewery and the the roundabout on the way to Heathrow. Um, As a street tree, it it somehow, it just like a sort of lamppost with leaves, really. It doesn't do very, it doesn't do that wonderful thing of producing a canopy that gives you shade, that uh, gives you the feeling that the country is not all that far away. Um, It's just a rather mechanical-looking thing, and it will grow absolutely huge. If it goes anything like its cousin, the redwood, wait until it's 250 feet high. (laughs) So those are some of the possibilities, and a little glimpse of the situation as regards trees. Addressing the title of my lecture, which was The Plain Forest, uh, does this city have the right trees? Uh, I think a large part of the answer to the second question is yes. For all information, please visit www.gresham.ac.uk.